Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Co-op this wonderful morning. And we have Miss Christine Barkwell on the phone with us from Cincinnati Union Co-op Initiative. Good morning, Christine. Good morning. How are you today? I am excited to be on the program. Thanks for the invitation. And we're excited to have you on. I know you're having your fourth symposium on co-ops on November the 15th and 16th. Yeah, that's right. Our Union Co-op Symposium. And I'm looking to come down and join you guys. I've been there a couple times. This is your fourth, so I guess I've been two out of the three that you've already had. I really learned a lot out there. Uh, what's going on good besides the fourth biannual symposium? Or what's, what's happening? Yeah, right I mean, there's a lot of things that are happening um, that we're excited about. So should I talk a little bit about who Cincinnati Union Co-op Initiative and One Worker, One Vote are? Yes, that be helpful? that's a good way to start. Okay, so um, so I'm the executive director of Cincinnati Union Co-op Initiative, and we got founded in 2011 to bring together the Mondragon Steelworker Agreement to life. So that was a very exciting agreement that happened in 2009 to launch union co-ops here in the United States. And I bet most of your listeners know who Mondragon is, but what what got us super excited about that is the fact that they're a true example of an incredibly remarkable integrated family of co-ops system that absolutely transformed an area of the Basque region of Spain that was full of poverty to a place that is nearly full employment and has been incredibly resilient over over 60 years. Um, that has over 75,000 people employed in a network of over 100 co-ops and just as a proven solution to how you create an, an economy that works for all, especially those that have been historically excluded. So that's what we're all about in Cincinnati. That's the kind of change we really want to see. We want to see it in Cincinnati when we want to see it around the country. So we brought that to life, that agreement, when Mondragon connected with the steelworkers and announced this agreement. Um, and so to date we have well, five- Before you go any further, I just want to make sure that our listeners heard this, that in Mondragon, Spain, mm-hmm. 70,000 people are employed? Over 75,000 people are, are employed in their network of over 100 co-ops. And this has been going on for 60 years? Yeah, their first co-op, which was a kerosene stove co-op, um, began in 1956. So when I was there about a year and a half ago, Spain had an unemployment rate of about 20%, but the area of Mondragon had a 4.1% unemployment rate because it's just an incredible model. And again, the model is related to not being just a co-op that's a one-off, but instead being part of a deeply integrated family of co-ops. 
So these co-ops actually give 10% of their profits back to the larger whole and then democratically decide where that money should go. So if it goes towards education or rainy day funds or new co-op development, research, they make those decisions. But that really helps them get through the downturns in the economy. They're multi-sectoral. They're really an incredible vision of what is possible. Okay, so somebody decided that if there's profits, they're going to take 10% of it and put it aside for what I want to call the sixth principle, social responsibility, mm-hmm. or is it the seventh, seventh principle, taking care of the community. That's- yeah, well, they're really, it, it's true. It is kind of connected to their, the intercooperation principle, I guess, um, because it really is, again, this, this really deep unity. And I believe this level of solidarity that they have that's not just connected to their profits, but it's actually also connected to if one of the co-ops is a bit in a downturn and needs to lay off some of their worker owners, there are agreements among the other co-ops to to accept those people into their co-ops, to cross-train them to make sure people are maintaining employment. So it's really remarkable. Um, it's, a, it's an extraordinary system that has a lot to teach us. So over 75,000 people in this area are employed by the co-ops, over 100 co-ops. They've yes. been going on since 1956. Yes. Okay, 62 63 years. Right. I understand it was poverty. It was uh, when this priest rode his bicycle into town, they just, people couldn't work. They were very poor. Well, right. See, so what happened was you had the Spanish Civil War and Franco came to power and the Basque region had, you know, been fighting him really, really hard. So uh, so things in the Basque region were in tattered and, and destroyed by the, the war, and they weren't getting support from the Spanish government. And so there was just an incredible level of poverty and unemployment. So then you're referencing Father, I call him Father Erezmendi because it's so much easier to say. It's something, it's more accurate, although I don't think this is exactly right either. It's Father Erezmendi Arrieta. But we'll stick with Father Esmendi today. Okay. Um, so he came in, right, sometime in the 40s on his bicycle, like you said, and into this this area of significant despair and destruction and began to um, help people get connected by helping different soccer games to get started. And then he began a school, a polytechnic school that had some had some cooperative principles embedded and he started all of these, um, these, these study groups to reflect on the reality and what was possible. There were thousands of study groups actually in those years of people coming together and really deeply thinking about what was going on and what could be done. So all through all of those powerful practices, emerged this co-op network. And I mean, five of the graduates of the Polytechnic School were the first founders of the Kerosene Stove Co-op. And Mondragon, actually, in addition to sort of the seven international cooperative principles, has three additional ones. So they have 10 cooperative principles they abide by. And the ones that are in addition to the beautiful seven cooperative principles are wage solidarity. So they just are really explicit 
that people that are in the higher levels of the co-op are only making, they can never make more than a certain amount higher than entry-level employees. They also say that labor is sovereign and capital, while instrumental, is subordinate to labor. So those are the other principles they abide by, which we find, you know, very beautiful as well. So wage solidarity, Mm -hmm. so I've heard of some co-ops will say that nobody can make more than four times the lowest paid person. So this is some multiple of the lowest paid person or some formula of what people can make. Yeah. So the way it works in Mondragon is there's the same wage scale at every single co-op throughout the whole 75,000 employees. And so what it is in the entire Mondragon system, no one makes more than eight times as much. So the head of Mondragon, like the head of the whole thing, is the only person that makes eight times an entry-level worker. In most co-ops, it is that three or like they make three or four times more. So it is it's a pretty it's a pretty cool thing in such a large system that involves advanced manufacturing that involves involves their own university their own bank it involves an incredible grocery store chain that has over 2000 locations over 400,000 community owners and 40,000 workers so it's a remarkable system and what we're excited about is Basically, what we in, you know, I want this to exist everywhere. When I've been in Mondragon, something that was has always left an impression on me is the fact that you can walk around and you don't see any homelessness. You don't see any mansions either, but you see, you know, a very vibrant community, um, people thriving, really. And that's what I would love to see worldwide. And interestingly, the the nonprofit I worked for in Cincinnati before I began doing this work actually sent delegations to Mondragon in the 80s and 90s, and they all came back saying, wow, this is what we want to see in the world. This is what it looks like to really put people over a profit. And at the time, they, they thought, well, God, it's amazing there, but could this really happen in the U.S.? In the Basque region, there tends to be this this collective, this more kind of natural collective thinking about mm-hmm. the whole community thriving. And in the U.S., we tend to think more about the American dream and a family thriving. And as I mentioned, all those solidarity mechanisms they have, that 10% going back to the larger whole, the sharing of workers between co-ops during downturns, all of that, you know, for that to thrive, you really need this, like this wider collective consciousness. And so, people in the organization, the nonprofit I worked for, just wondered if that was possible here. So, what became a game changer was in 2009 when Mondragon partnered with the steelworkers, because in the best practices of the steelworkers in the labor movement, you've got an incredible solidarity consciousness, the kind that needs to be tapped into to nurture this deep level of family of co-ops. So so that's that's what became super exciting and why we got involved um, in wanting to bring this to life in the U.S. And what's cool right now is we have a modest amount of co-ops 
activity here in Cincinnati that we deeply want to grow. So there's five co-op entities that are existing, and there's a new one that will be launching in June, and we start this thing called Co-op U, which is um, a 12-week co-op boot camp that is... um, Christine, I'm sorry. I want to come back to that, but before you move on, I just... I have a math background, okay? And and I just want to come back to something you said earlier. You said that in Mondragon, the highest paid person can only make eight times the lowest paid person. That's right. Okay, and that's only one person that's there, but I would take that example so that if the lowest paid person is making 20 bucks an hour using U.S. dollars, Mm-hmm. And the average is a 2,080 hours in a 40-hour week, but I'm just going to use 2,000 and make that math easy. Okay. So if the average person is, I mean, if the lowest paid person is making 20 bucks an hour, that means that the person is making $40,000 a year. And that could be a janitor, a cook, it could be somebody on the floor doing something, coming in. If the highest paid person can make eight times that, eight times that is a hundred. And sixty dollars an hour times two would be three hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year. Yes, and I guess that's true. <laughs> I would just say that in the majority of people in Mondragon, the it's more about three to four um, times higher. So there well, is one person though that makes the most. Even at four times higher, it would be eighty thousand a year. Mm-hmm. Okay, now and I'm, yeah, no, eight hundred and sixty four times. Sixteen hundred and sixty thousand a year, but I, I, let's take the eight because there's one person that can do that, and that's three twenty. The highest person, I'm wondering. Uh, I used to know these numbers, but I just took two million dollars, and I think it's much more than that. I um, mean, it might be twenty million dollars. The highest paid person at GM or one of the oh, manufacturing right. facilities. But yeah, you, the, I don't know the exact figures at this point, but um, when I've looked into it before, in our biggest companies, the multiple is really crazy from the lowest paid worker to the CEO. It's like over 300 times. Okay, uh, let me let me, let me me take a break, and we're going to come back and finish this little math exercise, and then I want to go into the things that you started to talk about, the, the different kinds of programs you had. But we're going to take our first break. Please don't touch that dial. Information is power, and this is why WOL makes a great partner because the National Co-op Bank and your host and our producer, Pat Thornton, we're all trying to give you information about co-ops that you may decide you want to start your own study group. You may want to start your own co-op. You may want to look and search out co-ops to buy goods and services from because of some of the great things that happen, and we're talking right now about Mondragon in Spain, and we're going to then switch over to talk about what's going on in Cincinnati. But what we were talking about before the break was the highest paid salary in Mondragon, which has over 75,000 people working over 100 different businesses, different co-ops, that if somebody made 20 bucks an hour at 2,000 hours per year, that would be $40,000. If the highest that the person could make is eight times that, that means that they were making $320,000. And so when Christine Barker, who is our guest, said that when she went there, she found that there was no homelessness. You didn't see people on the floor, on the ground, uh, under railroad tracks or something living. There were no big mansions, but people were striving. And the U.S., 
I have the, the lowest paid worker maybe making 10 bucks an hour and times 20 hours, that's $20,000 a year. And it's hard to raise a family. And that's why we have sometimes people, both persons working and they still have a hard time making it work. And if they were, if the highest paid person made $2 million a year, and I think you can find $4 million, $8 million, the highest paid person. But if they made $2 million a year and they worked 2,000 hours, and that's $1,000 per hour, which is 100 times the lowest paid person. So right right off, Christine, I get that when people don't want to raise it, to, the, the lowest wage is to 15. They say they can't afford it. I think they can if they lower the, yeah. how much the higher yeah. paid people work. Too. Even the the middle management uh, mm-hmm. may be the ones that are 100 times, and upper management may be, like you said, 300 times. Yeah. Uh, but we could get a lot of passing on the wealth, passing on not even wealth, uh, just mm-hmm. being for people have a, a decent living. Like you said, everybody's striving. Yeah, okay. So we got that. <laughs> I yeah. wanted to go back and really nail that because that's what I find is the problem with this with our economy and it's getting worse, this gap and wealth gap and income gap, it's getting worse and worse in the world, also here in the U.S., but definitely all over the world. Yeah, I agree with you um, 100%. I mean, clearly in the U.S., it's it's massively a problem just as it is around the world. Another interesting thing about Mondragon is related to, there's this this measure that actually checks out how much inequality is in each location, and it's called the Gini Index. Gini Index. Yeah, it's called the Gini Index. And in the area, that area of the Basque region of Spain, where Mondragon is, is actually um, one of the lowest places for income inequality. It has scores that are very similar to, to Sweden and Norway and Finland. So those are other areas where income inequality is lower um, than in many other places. So it's, it is interesting, um, and it is kind of amazing that this co-op network can help facilitate that because in the in those Nordic countries, they have some remarkable policies that help facilitate help facilitate lower levels of income inequality. Uh, but in Spain, those things are not existing in the same way, and so this. This co-op network is playing a really huge role in reducing income inequality. So that's also very powerful and, and needed here throughout the whole U.S. Have you seen a Gini index measurement for the U.S. or for portions of the U.S.? Or oh, anything? absolutely. And I'm trying to remember the exact numbers. They're they're kind of they're at least double what is available. Oh gosh, I wish I had it exactly okay. in my mind this moment, but they're they're double what you find in Mondragon in the Nordic countries. So, uh, well, real real quickly, I want to. I had a lady on from Finland, and Finland this year, the UN has this, decided that the happiest people in the world are from Finland. And oh, I hope helpful. my memory gets correct, but I think <laughs> Finland and. She was saying that 55, okay, I'm going by memory, so all of this may not be totally correct, but 55% of the business in Finland or 55% of the people uh, belong to co-ops. I think that was the number she used. Wow. And she said that the reason that people are happy in Finland is because they belong to co-ops. Oh, how cool. Yeah, it just blew me away because I hadn't expected anything like that. And 
the other thing, Jessica Gordon Nimhar was on the program uh, at the beginning so cool. of last month. And she was, t- when I said that to her, she was saying that there's been a study, and I've got to find it, that she thought it was dopamines, that when people work together, that uh, in co- collaboration or solidarity or whatever you want to call it, that your bodies create more dopamines and that people are therefore happier. And so it, so it made cool. sense to her. And so I want to get all of this together. Maybe there's a paper yeah. out of this. And that women create more dopamine than men when they work together. And maybe that's why there's more women in co-ops through the years. Um, because they ha- I always thought they had this nurturing ability, this innate. But it may be because that when they work together, they are closer together and they feel closer and they feel happier. And therefore, this tendency to work in co-ops. But well, you know, actually, it makes me think about one of our worker owners in our, our the first co-op we launched, which is called Our Harvest, which is about creating access to healthy local food in a way that honors land and labor. So it's a farm and food hub. And, and it's a tough co-op. It's a low-margin business. There's so much financial struggle involved. It was so capital intensive. We have too much debt. There's all kinds of challenges. But what's amazing, I think, is the morale and um of our workers. And one of them, Zeke Coleman, who is now, um, he started at packing and delivering, and he's now the food hub coordinator. And, and what he says is, he always describes it as like, unlike any workplace he's ever been in, that it really feels like this family, that everyone's got each other's back, that, you know, despite some of the challenges we face, that he just feels like so much like heart and community. And, and he, he happens to be a black man. And um, in his previous jobs, he experienced very serious discrimination, which he points out has never been part of this experience. And so I think even though there's, there's challenge and we have to be really creative about how we figure out cash flow and all of that, those kind of headaches that he's aware of as he's a worker owner, um, just that the environment and the care and the family-like environment is something he so appreciates. So he loves, he's like, he never feels, he's always ready to come to work, he said. It's never something he's you know, concerned about doing like he, he was in his previous job. So what my picture of this is you wake up in the morning and go, yes, I'm alive. I can go to work. Yay. <laughs> I don't know exactly if it's like that, but he says okay. lots of really positive things. <laughs> yeah. Let's go to work. I mean, how many people in the world, in the U.S., wake up with that kind of feeling like I have an opportunity to go to work. I am so happy. Yay, yay. No, yeah. Okay. So it may be that the, the dopamines are there and he feels family or feels together yeah. to feel working together, solidarity with democracy and the co-ops are right. open to everybody, no matter what their gender or race or politics right. or religion. It just doesn't matter. Yeah. It's open to everybody. And then there's one member, one vote. It's democratically mm-hmm. controlled. Everybody yeah. has each other's back. Uh, right. I, yeah. And I like the ethical principles. They say that of honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for one another. And I really like that caring for one another part yeah. of, of the values of co-op. So, yes, okay, that's why I like co-op. Yay, let's wake up and go do it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you were talking about it, and it's just our, our harvest, but I cut you off when you had begun to talk about some of the new co-ops that you are producing there, which is mm-hmm. incubator 
Yeah, so something that we're pretty excited about right now that kicks off again, we just we just piloted it last year because there's so many people that want to create union co-ops in our area and also actually across the U.S., but um, but we wanted to figure out a way that was, you know, sort of more efficient to help them get started. And so we worked with this wonderful woman that I think you met. Um, her name is Isabel Urabe, and she um, she went, she lived in Mondragon for 16 years, and she worked with their premier co-op incubator called Sayolan. So we worked with her to come up with this Co-op U, this incubator program that tapped into some of their best practices. We also use the Lean Startup principles, so it's very hands-on and practical and iterative, but it's a 12-week kind of co-op boot camp, union co-op boot camp that we piloted last year and we'll be doing again April 16th. And we, we limit it. There were a lot more applications, but we're limiting it just to five groups of people, five potential co-ops to go through um, just so that people can get enough attention and we have enough mentors to work in between the weeks with each person and that the, like anyway, just that we can give people enough support to be successful. So I'm pretty excited about that because there's all kinds of neat ideas that are going through. There's a a transportation co-op for people with disabilities. There's a compost co-op in creation. There's this really cool worker-owned pub that is there. There's this food access program. I mean, there's all kinds of neat things that are about to go through that. That'll be fun to see what happens in 12 weeks. But also okay, what I mentioned before is... You, before you go any further, sure. I get excited and you do too. We've got to take our <laughs> second break. And I want to come back and get the name of the co-op that you said in, uh, that she went to Mondragon and this boot camp and the things that they learned, lean sure. startup principles. So I want to go back, come back and go through some of that before we move on forward. But we're going to take our second break and we'll be right back. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOS, and 95.9 FM. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. We have Christine Barker, who is Executive Director of the Cincinnati Union Cooperative Initiative. And we've been talking about Spain and Mondragon, Spain, 75,000 employees, over 75,000 employees, over 100 co-ops working together in solidarity and the different things there. And we moved on to talk about what's going on in Cincinnati. And right before the break, we were talking about Lean Startup Principles and this 12-month boot camp, which starts on April the 16th. 16th. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's not a 12-week tw- boot camp. What did I say? I, I think you said 12 months, but maybe I heard wrong. Okay. <laughs> okay. No, okay. Well, I don't know what came out of the mouth, but 12 weeks is what I had in mind. And it's it's exciting because boot camp says that you're going to get a lot of learning in a short period of time. And it's that learning and knowledge transfer that I like to talk about. And you said you had a lot of uh, people interested and you narrowed it down to only five. Right. 
I'd say only because I really like to see us get more and more co-ops started. Right. No, it's true. We we want to do the same thing, but we want to make sure people get enough attention and support to be successful. So what it is is it's three hours a week of in-classroom training that's very hands-on and practical. And again, it's using some of Mondragon Sayolan's principles as well as Lean Startup. And then it's mentoring during the week. So there's really a lot of support for these co-ops. And then at the end, hopefully, um, they will be in a position, most of them, hopefully, ready to launch. Uh, so that is that is our hope. And we kind of also excitingly, because the working world has helped facilitate the development of a financial cooperative called the Seed Commons that allows um, it allows different localities to create their own loan funds using the infrastructure that the working world has created over time. So we actually have our own local loan fund now in Cincinnati as a part of that larger financial cooperative. So there is the ability to help do some seed financing. We can both raise money for our local loan fund, and we can also tap into the larger funds available at the working world through this really cool way they've made the underwriting infrastructure available to localities, to localities that agree to do ongoing technical assistance as well as be the loan officer. Um, So that's super cool, too. So we hope that we can also help provide some financial support to these co-ops as well. So... Three hours per week. Now, you said you had five groups. Right. How many people are in each group or approximately? So you have to have at least two that agree to come to every session. But most of the groups have three or more. One group has eight. (laughs) So so it varies. And that's also part of it, like so many people in the room. And that's another reason why why we're capping it at five uh, this time, but we'll be offering it again. And I think we'll also offer in the near future an online version uh, where we can work with people from other cities that are wanting to bring union co-ops to life because we get a lot of requests for that in Cincinnati. So I think that's something that'll be happening in the near future as well. When I was there the last time, I, wasn't there something, a California group starting up union Exactly. Co-op? And I think that's what's super, super exciting that. So we, we started the program by just announcing that there'll be this union co-op symposium November 15th and 16th in Cincinnati, which everyone is encouraged to come to. But we've now, as you mentioned, it's the fourth one. And after each one, some union co-op network in another city has formed. So after the first one in 2013, the L.A. Union Co-op Initiative formed. After the second one, the the Dayton Union Co-op Initiative formed, which is now called Co-op Dayton. After the last one, there's one that was formed in Albuquerque and in Nashville, and there's one that is formed in, in New York. But we get calls from people like all over the place, from Milwaukee to Minneapolis to Boston, all over the place. I was in New Haven this week, actually, and they're considering forming a union co-op network um, that want to to create this. So if, if we helped create something that people from outside of Cincinnati could tap into, I think that would be really uh, useful in helping to catalyze this movement across the country. Certainly when people come, 
in November. That'll be very useful. It's really practical. It's, it's about really connecting and deepening relationships. We have people from Mondragon coming, so you can learn um, all sorts of wonderful things directly from people in Mondragon. But then we kind of tap into collective wisdom from everyone who's doing these cool things around the country to help this movement grow um, and accelerate. And there's just a, I mean, there's all sorts of practical sessions to just help people get going or advance from where they are. So that'll be useful, but we think we do only do that every two years. And if we had some things that were going in the intermediate, it could be of use. So we're really looking into that. And I think that that'll be available probably within this year. So November the 15th and 16th is on a Friday and Saturday. That's right. And it's right in the middle of November before Thanksgiving. So you can come on out and Mm -hmm. learn about co-ops and co-ops and unions. And before we end, I want to talk about why unions. Sure. Um, But your classes for this boot camp is three hours a week in class with Mm -hmm. five groups, probably 25. 25 people in there you're training. Yeah. And then you have mentors that are working with each of those 25 people or each group? Each group. Each group. Mm-hmm. To help them to sort of, I guess, do a feasibility study, a well, plan, see, there, a People are doing that through the process. So it's super, again, this is very practical, very pragmatic, very iterative. So we're taking people through the lean startup process. So with that, you do these problem interviews. You kind of test all of your assumptions. You like There's homework every week that involves connecting with potential customers, refining your idea. There are... There is homework related to the feasibility and viability, but also related to what your market is, um, related to sort of every part that's risky in a business. So what you're trying to do is systematically de-risk your business and strengthen your plan so that you're really ready to go and that you launch something that you don't just launch something without having tested all of your hypotheses that are really necessary and your assumptions that are necessary to make this work. You you have done all sorts of homework and um, gotten things into a, a pretty solid place. So it's, it's really like there's all kinds of work. The work that you're doing each week is is figuring out the viability, the feasibility, the market, all of that. That's that's what you're doing each week. Viability of the business. Mm-hmm. So, and you're also learning all these cooperative principles as well. Um, you're learning all. I mean, there, there's a lot going on. It's a. It's a. It is like you said. It's it's a lot of information in a relatively small time. But in order to become part of this, people have had to do some work ahead of time to really get their idea a bit clearer. They they have to have a, a pretty. You know, they have to have a bit of a concrete sense of what they're what they're wanting to do and have done a little bit of pre feasibility work. So they're in a good place, and we want to just help them get all the way to launch a viable cooperative business that we'll continue to be involved with because we work in our network of co-ops. We meet with um, each co-op every week and help lead these team meetings. We actually developed a worker owner workbook that kind of reflects the kinds of things we do every week with our co-ops, which are helping to build financial literacy, business intelligence, emotional intelligence, communication, 
problem-solving abilities, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we want people to understand a lot about the labor movement, about cooperatives, solidarity, consciousness. So we, we really give long-term support to our co-ops through weekly meetings, not just with all the workers, but also with the CEOs to help navigate challenges and problems. So we, we make significant commitments to, to our network or family of co-ops. So since 2011, when you all got started, do you have any sense of how many co-ops you've helped to get started or you just helped, period? Well, um, that's interesting because I don't think we've ever counted the ones that we've helped to get started in other cities. So that would be interesting. But in our own, we've launched our Harvest Cooperative, which I mentioned, Sustainergy, which is um, a residential insulation and mold remediation co-op. Apple Street Market, we've been working on forever. This is a $4.8 million project in a food desert, a full-service grocery store that was supposed to actually begin construction right about now. But in January, we lost one of our new market tax, well, our new market tax credit investor, PNC, because of, actually because of tax reform. It turns out their tax liability was so much lower, mm-hmm. and they had over-invested in tax credit projects in 2018. So they froze all their projects across the U.S., which is really a bummer because we were starting, we were about to start construction. Um, so now we're kind of needing to find one and a half million dollars of equity again. So it's really, really delayed that project, which has been in the works for years. We have supported the launch of something called Renting Partnerships, who you've had on on this program. Mm-hmm. Um, Margie Spinney, uh, so you, you had her, and um, that is an awesome part of our network. They're a nonprofit that does affordable housing, manages affordable housing in an incredibly remarkable way that leads to both financial equity as well as deep community. And they're launching a real estate investment co-op called oh. Dividend Housing right now. Um, that helps to bring helps to finance these helps to finance housing and bring into operation um, this disinvested housing in Cincinnati, but in a way that doesn't lead to gentrification and can allow um, people to stay in. The yeah, it can allow people right. It can allow the rents that people need uh, when they're making twenty to thirty-five thousand. So it's a really cool model. We have something called CareShare, which is it's actually a child care co-op that um, I'm not sure if you know this, but um, child care workers typically make, you know, between 10 and $12 an hour, even though they're caring for our most precious people. And so, um, so one of our co-founders, Ellen Vera, when she had her son, she was just looking for a different option. Like what's a way to get quality childcare for her son in a way that is pain and, you know, valuing the worker more. And so what she did was connect with three other families and they had their kids all be in one of, one of the other families' house. Uh, one of the other family's houses, so keeping down the overhead expense so that things just went to the worker. And they together hired a worker who was then able to get $17 an hour as an employee for three kids or $20.50 an hour as an employee for four kids. So a pretty cool model that is being scaled right now through CareShare, so where these other shares of families are coming together, and that's a parent and worker-owned co-op. Um, right in June, we'll be launching this 
Uh, it's called the Cincinnati Cleaning Co-op, um, which I'm really excited about. There's a remarkable group of Guatemalan immigrants who are involved with that one and who have been working every Sunday for about eight months or maybe seven months in order to get this going. Um, so there's definitely a lot of activity, but we want way more activity. We're also working with some existing companies to transition to worker ownership. So okay, we're going we're gonna to stop there. Yeah. I think we can take our final break. Okay. <laughs> and we'll come back with the transition, taking a lot of baby boomers out their own co-ops, and they're ready to retire, and transitioning these ownership to the employees is just a great way of doing it. We'll be right back. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, W.O. 95.9 F. Information is power. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is everything cooperative. We're talking to Christine Barker out of Cincinnati, who has been telling us a lot about the work that they've done throughout the U.S. and starting other union co-op initiatives. And we just, in the last segment, was talking about the different co-ops they have started right there in the Cincinnati area. So you're, you were beginning to talk about, Christine, you were beginning to talk about transitioning, getting co-ops or employees to buy the business that they're in and form co-ops. Can you talk some more about that? Yeah, well, as you you were mentioning, that is a incredible opportunity right now because baby boomers are owning the majority of our small to medium sized businesses all across the U.S. and and the reason that matters is because historically, at times of business transitions, about eighty percent just close their door, most of which are still viable, but they're not sure who to sell it to, if their family doesn't want it, if they're too small for private equity or too small for an employee stock ownership plan. Um, And so what is remarkable is there is, you know, there is a path forward and that is selling to their employees through a worker-owned co-op. So there are people across the country, there are awesome groups across the country that are are working on this, um, are making this happen, are getting the word out. And we're doing that in Cincinnati. So we're working with a few different companies right now who um, want to sell to their employees. And what we're really trying to do is get the word out because it's just so unknown that this cooperative model exists. And so we're working with our city. The city um, is actually about to release a report that they've just done on the power of co-ops for economic development and particularly the promise they hold for businesses to transition to their employees. And so I'm really looking forward to the release of that because I believe that will help bring a lot more awareness. Um, And that's the primary thing that I think is needed, just that there's not enough people that know about this. And this could be very destabilizing to all of our neighborhoods around, around the country if so many businesses close because baby boomers, you know, 10,000 of them retire every day. And so in order, I mean, it could be destabilizing or it could be an incredible opportunity to truthfully broaden ownership 
in our country and, you know, really be a way to respond and reduce that income inequality that we've talked about to maintain these businesses, to strengthen these communities. So so that's what I hope we see. I hope, I hope it ends up as a big opportunity and that across the country um, there's just an incredible transitioning to worker ownership that is, is accelerated in the next few years. So, Christine, what I'm hearing you say is that you got all these baby boomers who own these companies that they can either sell them or close them. Right. If they can't sell them, then they'll close them. And if they sell them, then the person may move it. They might do any kind of thing. It's up to whoever buys it what happens. But if they do close it, it's really clear those people that are working there are out of business, and that means that the neighborhood now has unemployment. Mm-hmm. And then what happens to those can, I guess it's not going to be necessarily like Mondragon in 07, 08, when, when a company went under, the other companies absorbed those employees. <laughs> okay. Right. You don't necessarily have that in the U.S. I say you don't have it, not just don't necessarily. So that's why you get the destabilization of the community you're talking about. But if the employees buy it, then you get up, I want to say, a more stable Absolutely. Because that money stays and the employees will live in the neighborhood. Right. And then they will spend their money in the neighborhood. And yes. I did not learn I didn't understand this when I took it in economic classes, but the money now can turn five to eight times in a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And and where in most yeah. in most neighborhoods, black and brown neighborhoods, particularly but poor neighborhoods, I'm from West Virginia, and poor neighborhoods where black, brown or white, it doesn't make any difference, that money only may be turned once or twice in the neighborhood. Yeah, you're right. I mean, certainly co-ops are economy-boosting jobs. They create economy-boosting jobs that allow the money to multiply in communities um, that absolutely strengthen communities. And, of course, worker owners have every um, motive to help maintain that uh, business in their community to help it grow, to create the best jobs possible, to be very mindful of their community impact. I mean, you're right. It's a win-win-win. I mean, every way you look at it. So I think the word just needs to be gotten out that this is a real opportunity and there are people across the U.S. poised and ready to help <laughs> make it happen. Okay, so. so how can we and Everything Co-op help to get this word out? Well, I mean, it's like you're doing it today and I'm sure you've had on some other groups. There's a Workers to Owner Collaborative. There's Project Equity, which you may have had on, that's located in the Bay Area and helping to support this work across the country. Um, Cooperative Development Institute, CDI, is doing remarkable things, especially in Maine. I think highlighting those stories um, would be really useful um, in terms of helping people know what's you know, what's going on, what's possible to hear some stories of this working um, will be very motivating for people. The Ohio Employee Ownership Center has been doing this for years. Um, Highlighting them would be helpful. I mean, this will be a definitive focus at the this will be a definitive focus when we gather in November in Cincinnati. So it is really important. And I know and I was just thinking that you asked about the union part of co-op before. And I did want to talk a little bit about that because it is kind of an unusual thing because I think people, um, 
you know, when we talk about the union co-ops, people are thinking, well, there's worker ownership. It's one worker, one vote. Why would you additionally need a union? That was my first question the first time I came out to Cincinnati. So tell us why you would need a union. (laughs) Yeah. So I think what's interesting is, again, looking at Mondragon's experience, that their experience was even though there's that level of worker voice and power, as co-ops grow in size, there begins to be a disconnect between people on the shop floor and people in management. Even though workers can actually decide to remove their supervisor and so forth, and even though they participate in an annual general assembly, there's still decisions being made in a daily way that can impact them negatively when there's not sufficient information flowing. And so actually in Mondragon, there was in the 70s an actual strike in one of the co-ops. And so what they did after that was to just kind of double down on something they call the social council. So this is an entity in their co-op structure. Like you have, you know, all co-ops have a board of directors that are elected by workers, by worker owners. And that board of directors selects a management team often. But this is another entity within the Mondragon co-op experience. It's called the social council. And what it does is it's like this defined space where conflicts are handled, where information flows very freely between management and all workers to make sure sufficient input is always available. It's kind of a redundant, it's a point of redundancy to help make sure co-ops are always living up to their values. And that allows co-ops to scale with their values and sufficient participation. So I think it's a really neat part of their system that we've baked into ours. In Mondragon, the Social Council came into being at a time when trade unions and craft unions, all of those unions, were illegal under Franco. So sort of a creative way to bring in that that union role. Mm -hmm. And so when we come to the U.S., instead of calling it the social council, we call it the union committee, and we just start working directly with unions in that role, but doing that same exact thing. Um, to be the place where you handle conflict, to be the place where you make sure that um, there's sufficient information flow. Um, What I find interesting is the largest worker-owned co-op in the U.S., which is the Cooperative Home Care Associates in the Bronx, they actually came upon this model themselves prior to the Mondragon Steelworker Agreement. They had been around for about 20 years, had about 500 employees, and they invited SEIU 1199 to come in and organize them. Uh, And this was about 12 years ago now. And they did that because they saw a whole lot of benefits to having a union involved in their worker-owned co-op. So one of them is related. They created something called the Labor Management Committee that kind of functions like the Social Council or the Union Committee in this particular role. But it's a place where... You know, you make sure you're scaling with values, there's clear ways of participation, it's all of that. They also wanted to tap into the strength of the union related to lobbying. Um, they are they directly receive most of their income through the state policies related to Medicaid. And so being part of that policy power, um, that lobbying power of the union uh, was really positive. The union was also able to bring in some more training dollars, and because they care deeply about training their home care workers, 
They also really appreciated that. Also, the union's national footprint, which allowed some of the best practices they had developed over the years through their nonprofit to be shared across the country. So for multiple reasons, they wanted the union to come in and strengthen them. So I find it like so interesting that they did all of that before the Mondragon Union Co-op model came into being. But I find it to be just more validation for what's possible when, you know, I, I just think like this is a way for co-ops mm-hmm. to think about, here's how you scale with your values. We only have one minute, so oh, tell, minute. tell people out there the last comment of what you like people to know. Well, here's what I'd say. I say, everyone, if you can, come to Cincinnati November 15th and 16th. It's a really special time where people share their collective wisdom and where there's so much deepening of relationships and so many practical takeaways at our Union Co-op Symposium. I hope you all can join us. And I'm seriously grateful for this. Thank you. I'll be there. Thank you very much for taking the time. Everybody out there, please, we'll see you next Thursday. Live cooperatively. Thank you. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOF, 95.9 FM.